How are you? I'm good. I'm late. You, you, you are late. That? Yeah, you're. You're. Uh, I'm not that I'm keeping track, but you're 24 minutes late. Oh, hello. Have you muted yourself? Have I muted myself? No, you. Yeah, I think you were. You. You know, I. I. Oh, it's so complicated. Computers, Ben. Oh, am I? Uh, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> Twenty-four minutes late. God damn it! It's I, okay. You had. Uh, you had a. You had a somebody on the phone, and then you had to uh, see a man about a horse, and you know, I it's did. complicated. My the horse. The horse has left the barn. Uh, so that's in a good way. No, 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 no. You no, no need to close the barn door. Because the nope. horse is already out. No, I, horse, I, 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 I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully, you have pants on because you're at work. I, I do. I don't have shoes on though. You know, I'm, a, I'm a Whoa. barefoot podcaster. Whoa. Yeah, I like to take, like to take my shoes off, and uh, when I'm talking to you on the, on the podcast, <laughs> is that weird? Should yeah. I not share that? Uh, you have not shared that. You know who else likes to take his shoes off? Uh, <laughs> I don't. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, there are too many jokes. I, well, no, it's uh, it's not it's not a joke. It's a puzzle. Um, he's uh, he's also Canadian. Um, for a while, he worked at a U.S. university. Now he's back at a Canadian university. Okay, but before you go to the obvious choice, um, you also knew him when you were in college and he was uh you you, you he was under your your care your tutelage oh yes with uh, uh and another obvious uh, the obvious choice is someone who doesn't like apple or apples right which would, which uh, would be a which would be a red herring <laughs> yes good job good riddle that's yeah uh so not i was I, I don't think I, I knew that. Um, we're we're of course talking about um, uh, Dr. Mike Rogers, who's uh, now at the uh, University of Guelph, who doesn't like to wear shoes. He doesn't <laughs> like to wear shoes when he's giving lectures. He will take his lectures off um, oh. uh, when he's lecturing, and uh, he would he would teach for us in a short course, and it would show up in the evaluations. Like he uh, should Dr. put his Dr. shoes Dr. on. Dr. Rogers took his shoes off, and it was a little weird, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> And he's, he's, I, he's, he doesn't listen, but he's 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 a weird he's a he's a weird dude. I, I am um, fully in my. Uh, what was I going to say to you? Uh, I'm fully in my my own closed office where before I open my door, my shoes will be back on. Well, that's, so I think no, that's that's professional, Ben. That's just only it's, common courtesy. It's not showing up on the evaluations. It's not showing up on the podcast. Well, it might now. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Since we talked about it, this is uh, you know it's a theater of the mind. Yeah, we could, um, we could be dressed. Uh, we could be wearing silly hats and uh, you know and, uh, uh, bow ties. Of, yeah, bow ties. Really round, really round glasses like uh, like John Lennon style yeah, granny glasses. Like, yeah, with uh, tinted like rose colored uh, glasses. Yep. Rose- yep. <laughs> Actually, I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a hat with a, a a beanie with a propeller on it. Oh well, it's good. Uh, are, I think I'm wearing a um, a dunce cap, and I've got a parasol. Nice. Yeah. So it's. I think that that works out well. Um, shouldn't we all just have rose colored glasses on right now, Don? Don, I'm in. I'm in full <laughs> shut. I'm in full shutdown mode. Uh, also, so uh, you know, we this isn't uh, uh, a political safety talk, but I do want to talk about how the shutdown has affected me. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I have a couple of, uh, federal contracts where, um, on Friday I received a message from one collaborator saying, Hey, so this is all getting real because 
you know, sometimes when we hear about threats of a shutdown, everything's like, yeah, don't worry about it. This time it's like, go, you're going to be going away for a while. So prepare for that to tell all your collaborators. So I got that call on Friday afternoon. Um, and then I got late Friday, I got another message from uh, another project, uh, where they said, uh, Hey, so when the shutdown's on, you can't do any work on the project. So don't, so you're shut down, shut, shut it all down. Wow. Yeah. But well, then we so, got some clarification in this morning that said, not yet, not until officially we hear that things are shut down. Do we actually need to shut down? Well, things are officially shut down, though, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the government's in shutdown. No, no, until our the contracts with a uh, oh, federal see. agency tells us. So, so there's still some people that are. I mean, it's it's in full shutdown. But uh, but but but, the, but, the, but here's the thing: if the government is shut down, who can tell you that the contract I, is shut down because they're shut down? Right, it it's a uh, it's a catch it's a catch twenty two shutdown. It's a is that a Punnett Square? No, that's something different. It's uh it's an it's an Escher uh, uh, painting, I think. <laughs> we're so, we're all just viewing the shutdown. We're all just walking, yeah, walking up on a, downstairs on a on a stairway that never goes anywhere except <laughs> round and round. Hey, so I, I have I also have uh, shutdown stories to tell, um, and that and so last time the government was in shutdown, it really impacted my ability to do my job as an editor because I had to find a way to contact um, potential reviewers of manuscripts who worked for the government. Um, because I, f- you know, and, and then that opens up an interesting question. And so I had posted something. And so in, you know, in an effort to do that, I kind of put some, I made a comment on social media. And then I got a response from uh, a friend who wasn't reviewing a manuscript, who was who a federal employee, who said, well, we can't actually do that. Um, because if we found, if we were found to be working, um, during the shutdown, we could be fired. And my response was, well, what if you review manuscripts as a hobby <laughs> and it's yeah. not, it's not actually part of your work. Right. Um, and, and the good news is, is that the, the person that I was hoping to, Oh, and then I also, so one, so I did reach out to someone who's a federal employee and somebody else who's a state employee. And I said, hey, guys, you're, over, you're really overdue on your manuscripts. I really need these. And um, one of them responded. And that was via, via a, a, a private, Facebook private message, which I guess is probably not really private. So, um, so if, if the Russians are monitoring that, uh, don't, please don't get my friend fired. <laughs> but um, uh, it's yeah, all WikiLeaks so, already. Well, it was, he, was, yeah. he did on the weekend. He said, well, you know, and I don't want to reveal too much because I don't want to triangulate yeah. his position. But he said, well, um, I'm, I'm at a birthday party right now. But uh, when the party's over, I'll review the manuscript for you. And this was on the weekend. So I thanked him for working on, on the weekend, which, which as far as I'm concerned is probably not when he was drawing his federal government salary, right? Right, right. I, it's also confusing, right? Mm. Um, I, so no, I think it's not confusing at all. I think it's pretty clear the government is shut down and it's, it's majorly screwing up uh, our ability to do science. <laughs> well, but so remember last time we had like – Websites were also shut down, right? Like, like we couldn't get. Oh, I forgot. I, I don't that, know if you were, yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember, we couldn't get to like uh, site. Uh, you know, for some because somehow that <laughs> was like just the fact like the algorithm couldn't run, right? Like because it was shut down. There was something weird that like you couldn't we couldn't always find stuff, and I think this was happening during final rule making for program control and produce. I just remember not like that, that 
websites cease to work. Wow. Uh, I, I did not remember. I, my only memory was, was literally that I just couldn't contact people um, to get manuscript reviewed. That was, that was my big, that was my big thing. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I just checked FDA.gov is up. So that's, that's good. But, but um, so this, this did come into place on Friday night. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll jump right into food safety talk today. Like mm-hmm. we, we don't even have, there's no preamble today. Uh, there's, there's an outbreak. Well, there was a little bit of shoe preamble, but we'll, we'll, well there's a bit, that. bit of sh- Yeah. Uh, there's an outbreak of, um, uh, salmonellosis, uh, linked to, uh, sprouts at, at Jimmy John's and it's a multi-state outbreak and there's not like, as of Friday night, when I was writing about it, I, I there was nothing posted on CDC's website about this multi-state outbreak. And there wasn't anything that was that FDA had released, but I, but, but now, um, there is some information that CDC put out that came out after, um, like at the deadline of the shutdown, like it came out right before everything shut down. And I was not, it was 6 PM, uh, Eastern time on Friday. And I was not expecting to see anything because I was like, well, it's after, it's after five o'clock and things might shut down and probably no one's going to do this before midnight. So, um, I just went ahead with all the stuff that I saw in popular media, but then uh, CDC posted some stuff, but who we probably, you know, won't see any updates, uh, to that. Uh, right. Until, until the shutdown is resolved. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and thanks to those hardworking CDC employees who decided to work until six o'clock that day so that we could at least get uh, their perspective on that. So that's nice. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Salmonella Montevideo, eight cases, three different states. Uh, Epi is linking to Ross Brown served at Jimmy John's and by lots of different counts, this is either their fifth, sixth, seventh or eighth outbreak linked to Ross Sprouts at their uh, establishment. Yep. And my, and my question was, so what, because I mean, people, and people really, people love to pile on and hate Sprouts. And I, you know, I sound like a broken record because I want to talk about um, uh, Bob Sanderson and Jonathan Sprouts. And I really think he's doing a really good job. And he, he is, you know, he's a, he's the, I think he's still the president of the International Sprout Growers Alliance. And, um, uh, you know, my question regarding Jimmy John's is not, you know, whether they should serve sprouts, whether they do serve sprouts. What are their criteria for sourcing from sprouters? Because I think that they're probably if you if you have a commitment to serve sprouts in your restaurants, what's your protocol or what's your system for ensuring that you um, that you only buy from the best of the best? And, and I, I've got to think that maybe they're not doing that. Right. And like over and over again. Right. Right. Like, right. Like, like what? So, um, you know, there's lots of cliches about getting burned once or twice on the same thing and who's responsible for it. But if I'm running a business and I consistently am sourcing sprouts that are making people sick, then either my standards need to be updated again, or they weren't in the first place, or my supplier list has to be shortened or I have to go elsewhere. I, I, I mean, I, I think, what it, numerous times it gets, it, it just becomes a little bit ridiculous. And it, is it like there are other companies out there that sell sprouts and they haven't had eight, eight outbreaks, right? Like this, why, why is that? What is, is this just eight unlucky, um, seven or whatever the number is, some, you know, unlucky times or, 
is it we, we continue to go back to the same supplier base and they say, yeah, we got it figured out and, and they cause another eight illnesses. Um, I, I think so. The first thing that I tweeted about this, that, that you were seconds after it was up, um, you liked was, uh, a, a picture that I, that I saw this, I, I, the one that I posted was something from the internet cause I couldn't find the one that I took, uh, quickly, but, um, a picture that they had posted or a sign that they had posted after one of the previous outbreaks that, of this green sign that says, Hey, we sell sprouts, eat them at your own risk, um, with skull and crossbones. And, and I, I thought it was very like, you know, Hey, you know, we, we need to tell you that there's a risk, but we're going to do it in the most over the, over the top way. And isn't it cool that you're buying something that's got skull and crossbones and we're going to market the heck out of, um, selling sprouts at our, at our restaurant cause they're dangerous. And, and then they have another outbreak afterwards. Yeah, like ha- I just, ha- hashtag death wish coffee. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, just so, yeah, yeah. I, I just think that it, it's, it's somewhat hilarious. It says, um, you know, I, I can read from the uh, the actual post is uh, the consumption of raw sprouts may result in an increased risk of foodborne illness and poses a health risk to everyone. Expected mothers, um, daredevils, uh, cute old ladies, infants, vegans and vegetarians, grumpy old men, um, invincible teenagers, your average Joe persons with the strongest superheroes. Uh, oh no, persons with weakened immune systems and even the strongest superheroes, please beware. If you, uh, don't believe me, contact physicians or local public health department. Um, yeah, I just, it, to me, it's, it's kind of like, uh, um, uh, you, okay, we're going to post this consumer advisory, but really we're going to make fun of it. Yeah. Which is not, not, not really, uh, not really helpful. So no, it's not, it's not. Yeah. Um, so, but nothing from, uh, from the Jimmy John's people other than, Hey, uh, we're, we're sorry. We're making people sick from our sprouts. What do yeah. you, so let me so, l- okay. challenge, yeah, well, challenge podcast. Time. So, so I want to, I want to talk, I want to take a brief, uh, 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 left turn, right turn, uh, into, uh, Twitter. Okay. And so first of all, we have to say, so we'll link to your barf blog post, which has an excellent, which quotes from, uh, the excellent, uh, MB bats on Twitter, um, who says that the five things I avoid eating human remains, feces, things that fell in feces, most garbage and sprouts. So, so thank you for that, uh, Michael bats. Um, the other thing that I want to point out, and, and I do this at risk of perhaps, um, Perhaps lowering in your eyes the 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 rapidity with which I do Twitter. So so I I want to explain my Twitter workflow. Okay. Ooh, ooh I'm excited. And, and so well, don't, don't be too excited. So it's not that good. Um. So I have two I have two Twitter apps, uh, and I only I almost always just use Twitter on my phone. Right. I mean I can do it other places, but but the tr- really my phone is my is my machine for doing Twitter. So um, and I have the the uh, the Twitter app, and I have an app called Tweetbot. And I have a bunch of I have Twitterific, but I don't really use it. So, so Twitter and Tweetbot are the two apps that I use. And Twitter has a really interesting f- feature in that you can set up to get a notification on your phone if certain people tweet. 
Okay. And I, and I have that set up and you are actually on that list. And so Ooh. I, I, I want to know every time you tweet something now, um, <laughs> you're the only one. Well, you're the only person that wants to know every time I tweet something. Well, it's just, it's a, it's a way. And I, 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 I probably should go back and, and there's a few And you're, you're in, you're in August company. Okay. You're, you're in, you know, the, the higher echelons, um, of, of people that I follow uh, on Twitter. Um, but I have to, I have to, I have a story and I, and the story was, was a current events, um, a couple of podcasts ago, but at some point, and this was, this, this caused me great, uh, pain at some point, um, the amazing, uh, uh, Twitter account AO despair, which is David Simon, um, uh, who, you know, was responsible for five seasons of the best television ever made, um, the wire, um, he blocked me on Twitter, (laughs) Really? Yeah, and I think it was because so I often have a sort of a, a sarcastic replying tone. And if you if you're in a if you're a big important person like David Simon and you're in a hurry and you block uh, uh, idiots uh, and a holes <laughs> indiscriminately, you might see that and you might just say, "Oh, block." Um, so um, and then uh, then there was an opportunity um, which is which is awesome, and we'll link back to it. So in an effort to spur people to donate to um, political causes, um, he was offering to um, uh, to apo- publicly apologize on Twitter for, for, spoiler alert, if you have not watched The Wire, stop listening right now. Um, he po- wanted to, he would publicly, apo- for a sufficiently uh, high enough donation, donation, he would publicly apologize on Twitter for killing off one of the, one of the, the beloved characters in that show. Um, and I, I won't even reveal who it is. Um, and so, uh, so, so here's the thing. I have I had developed this janky workaround because I wanted he was one of those people that was on my list of must follow people. Yeah. But but he blocked me. So I couldn't follow him. <laughs> but I have a couple of other Twitter accounts. Um one uh, so I'm the the person behind the the Twitter account for Applied and Environmental Microbiology, a journal of which I am one of many many editors, and I just sort of put my hand up and said, "Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll do that." And then I also have another account that I may or may not be responsible for that may or may not tweet out things that random um microbiologists um say. So, um so I was following him from one of those uh, accounts. Um, and then so that I could know when he said something and that's how I knew about this whole thing. And so, and then of course, to, to let him know, you know, that, that I, I, I had, um, you know, to, to kind of, cause it was good, it was good. It was a good political cause. I wanted to contribute some money. I did it. And I said, so that you, you know, he apologized for Omar, whatever, but also please unblock this guy <laughs> because he really doesn't <laughs> want to be blocked anymore. And, uh, and he did it. It was very, it was oh. very nice. And he, and he apologized uh, for killing a character and, uh, yeah. And, and, and so, and, and of course, speaking of Michael Batts, he noticed that and, uh, you know, he shames me all the time for all the stupid stuff I do on Twitter. So he shamed me for that. So thanks. Thanks for that, Michael. I know you'll listen to this eventually. So, um, yeah, so that's a little bit of a, an aside about how I use Twitter and my adventures with being blocked by, um, the man responsible for the best five seasons of television. <laughs> that's and, and, I, I, and I'm, I am, I am now more inhibited in what I say, especially to him. <laughs> Oh because gosh. I don't want to get blocked again because he's and he's kind of on he's one of those people I probably should uh, not get immediate notifications because he just he tweets in like bursts of activity and he's he's very 
Oh, he's very he's very aggressive and he's very angry and I appreciate it, but it's probably not good for my blood pressure or my you know my my mental health to to have a constant stream of that. But but anyway, for that for the moment, that's so, so you and David Simon and Mike Batts and Merlin and John Roderick and a few other folks are on that list. So anyway, you're you're oh. in good company. Oh well, that's that's great. I I had a um, an interesting Twitter misunderstanding um, this week based on. Uh, a conversation that you and I were having. Um, and so, uh, you know, friend of the podcast, Nora nerd, um, mm. mentioned something about, uh, you being really famous because your picture was <laughs> tweeted by, yep, yep. IFP. Uh, IFP, yep. um, to which, uh, you know, uh, Nora nerd said something about, uh, I will read the, the full string here. Um, I hear he has a podcast where he talks too much more of the other guy. That's what I say. Oh, well, and that was actually, sorry, let me go back. That was not what it was. Um, Nora nerd tweeted about a paper that right, I co-authored right. with, with her sister, yep, uh, yep. Mary to Janot. Yep. And, um, your response was congrats to Mary, but who's this hack at Benjamin Chapman? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Nora. Yeah. Nora nerd says, I hear he has a podcast where he talks too much more than the other guy. That's what I say. My response was me too. Your response was me too. Out of context, this is where things got a little dicey. I got an email from someone saying, Hey, I saw that you tweeted me too. And just wanted to make sure, you know, if you wanted to talk. And I was like, I had no, no, that wasn't what I meant. Right. Right. So like, and it, and it put like, so, so the, the workflow and timing of, of social media in general and where Twitter is, is out of phase, right? Like I may not look at my phone or I might not go there at the exact time when that conversation is going on. And then someone who's not following you or Neuroner just sees that I tweeted me too and can't figure out what the conversation is. Right. Um, and cause I did that, you know, hours afterwards. Um, I was like, Oh my gosh, no, don't, you know, I'm, that is not, not the situation. Um, you know, it's, I'm not, uh, not in, um, not, not, uh, stating anything in a hashtag me too, uh, kind of way. And so I, it just made me think like, oh my gosh, be, be more careful about what my, what my tweets are and what they're conveying out of context. So, so you, you too, as well, because you also, uh, tweeted me too. Yeah. Well, and, and I, and I actually, what I was going to say, and I was listening to, I was listening to a podcast recently and I want to, I don't remember now which one it was. It was probably, it was probably one of the ones with Merlin on it, but um, talking about how the best, um, uh, the best time in the history of REM was when each of the guys would go in to the studio and, and say, could you turn my part down a little bit um, with, and so the idea being that we, you know, we're sort of, you know, each of us thinks that the other guy on the podcast should talk more. Um, so I don't know. That's what's what occurred to me, but, but yeah, so no, with that, that's not why we were tweeting me too. No. Um, Oh, and then the other thing we have to point out is that um, there's some fake news regarding that picture of me that IAFP Food tweeted. Um, it's been hacked by uh, Michael Batts um, to say something that's just simply not true. I don't have, I don't do that, and I don't have a band that says that. Uh, I think, I think probably, pro- I don't know whether the band was turned inside out or whether the photographer, in an effort to stop us promoting um, uh, uh, the the amazing Dr. Linda Harris, um, uh, basically erased the words from from my from my purple wristband, which might have said something like, um, uh, "I, uh, 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 you know, uh, 
what would Linda do? So what would <laughs> I don't do that. And I wouldn't wear a band that way. Uh, also, I think we're ordering a bunch of bands that say I eat farts uh, <laughs> for, for IFP this next year. So just, nice. uh, just a heads up. Nice. Um, yeah. So gosh, Don, there's lots going on well, in the world of food safety and, and People are emailing us. Well, and I was going to say, so this is this is going to be. We could do nothing, Ben, uh, besides talk about um, shoes and the shutdown and farts. Um, but we have a we have a, a lot, a lot, a lot of listener feedback to talk about. Yeah, so let's do it. Let's do it. Like like they say in listener feedback, let's do that listener feedback. Is that what they say? Yeah, that's that's a reference to a great Saturday Night Live skit that um, is about uh, hockey, where uh, <laughs> someone who does not cover oh. hockey says, "Like they say in hockey, let's do that hockey." Uh, oh, Which, more more cowbell, more exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. So more cowbell this year. So, so should we do this? So let's do this in. Um, let's. Oh, oh gosh, and we could also talk about Listeria and South Africa. There's so much to talk about. All right, so let's let's try to let's try to. Uh, blaze through this listener feedback. I mean, give, give each buddy, everybody their fair due, but, but let's, let's do it all. So, um, so first, first bit of feedback is from, uh, James Sorensen who says, uh, please share all details freely. Uh, James writes electric pressure cookers like the Instapot, www.instapot.com and power pressure cooker, www.powerpressurecooker.com. Good URLs guys, um, are all the rage now. And some advertise that they can be used for canning based on my readings from the national center for home food preservation and the USDA. They advise not to can in them. Could you talk a little bit about this topic in light of their growing popularity? Ben. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the Instapot and I'm not familiar with power pressure cooker, mm-hmm. um, but I, but Instapot, Instant Pot, Instapot, um, is, uh, is, is all the rage, not only, um, in my prof- you know, professional life, but personal life. Cause I think mm-hmm. for, you know, 40 or 50% of the people that I know in, in real life and in things that are not food safety are all Instant Pot users. And, um, from from what I've what I've researched on these is they are programmable um, and timed uh, pressure cookers, not pressure canners. And pressure cookers aren't great tools for um, for any sort of canning because they're not really built for um, the the canning process. Where I think, you know, I, I would like to see some more, um, investigation. And in fact, there was some, some work that was done by, um, Barb Ingram and Barb Ingham and, um, a a grant that she has with our uh, friend and colleague, um, Elizabeth Andrus, where they looked at programmable canning, uh, electric canners um, and, st- and, you know, that, that use, uh, steam for, um, for preservation, um, that they would be, you know, from a safety standpoint, fine if you're going to can, uh, high acid foods or jams and jellies, but it can't be really used as a replacement for pressure canning because a, the pressure is not, um, it's not stable, uh, the, the pressure release, it's not, it's not like the control that you have in a pressure canner, uh, on being able to, to track what, what that pressure is, but also that they are not built for that sustained, um, long-term 
pressure to um, to inactivate spores. Like they're just, it's not, it's not built for that. So they, they have failures um, over time. So I, you know, I think if I was going to um, make four pints of um, strawberry jam and I wanted to, to can them, I don't need to use uh, a pressure canner for that. Uh, but I could use my Instapot uh, maybe um, for it. Uh, as long as the jars that I was using could be used under under pressure, but I don't think there's a lot of good data on it. What do cool. you what do you what do you know about it? Anything? I I don't I only know what you just told me, and then we'll link to the um, the entry on um, uh, National Center for Home Food Preservation uh, <clears throat> entitled "Burning Issue Canning in Electric Multi Cookers," and I have to say. Thank you for um, providing that explanation, because if you look for Instant Pot on uh, the uh, National Center website, you don't find anything, but, but the generic name is Electric Multicooker. So we'll, we'll, we will link to that. And I have nothing to add except to say, yeah, you just have to be, you have to be careful. And I would say trust uh, reputable websites like uh, university websites where people have actually evaluated this. And I would be a little bit skeptical of, um, you know, website, the product websites. And sometimes they're good, but in this case, I would say not. So, what one thing I wanted to touch on before we, you know, leave this, and it's not about canning, but I have received a bunch of questions that I don't have good answers for. So I've kind of, re- you know, relied on. Um, yeah, I don't know if anybody's investigated this yet, but so these are these pots are programmable, and um, un- are similar, I guess, to a to a slow cooker where. Um, I want to use my instant pot, but uh, so, and I want my, my meal to be ready when I arrive home from work or from wherever I'm going. So I load it up at the start of the day and set a timer and say, okay, at four o'clock, I want this to come on. Um, what, where the questions have, have arrived is, well, what does that do in, you know, for foods that are in there that might support the growth of, um, let's say a toxin, uh, you know, staph toxin or, or something like that, that in the six or seven hours that the food is sitting at room temperature, what kind of risk do we see? And, you know, I, I, I look at it very similar to, uh, you know, leaving other foods at, um, at room temperature, but what I haven't investigated yet, um, or been able to, to, you know, pull anything to help answer that question is, um, what you know, most of the stuff that's out there is on on slow cookers, which don't utilize any pressure for in, you know, and then you know, increasing temperature because of that pressure. So, I, what I don't know is how hot and how much pressure it would need to get to you know denature any of these um, heat stable uh, toxins, and whether there really is a staph you know, risk or. Um, a bacillus serious risk uh, with with the fritter. and and so I've kind of just been like yeah I I probably wouldn't um, hold I, I would err on the side of not holding anything that could support growth in that instant pot without uh, temperature control for more than four hours so I might program it but I wouldn't do it for like a four, you know a twelve hour hold and then start start your pressure cooking. Right, and and I think uh, probably if you if you you know made some intelligent guesses about pH and water activity, um, and then programmed a ramp up in temperature, you would find that you would if you use some predictive models out there, you would see not much growth. Um, where where it tends to be where it tends to be 
potentially where the models might show a significant amount of growth have to do with assumptions about whether the organisms undergo lag phase or not. And so the fact that these organisms, um, well, for for bacillus spores, um, the the those spores probably need a heat treatment to to trigger germination. So that's so that so that's an additional safety factor. Um, <clears throat> staph probably undergoes a lag phase. Also, staph is not a terribly good competitor. So the other organisms that are there are going to be able to outgrow uh, staph, spoilage organisms, and stuff and such. But I suspect, if, even with some, you know, conservative assumptions. Um, you're not going to see significant staph growth, not to the levels needed to cause illness, if there is even staph there. So mm. again, probably what I worry about more with those kind of products and the unattend, uh, and we talked about this a little bit before, unattend, unattended cooking. Number one, I worry about fire and safety risks, right? right. This is a thing that's plugged in, that's getting hot in your kitchen when you're not there. Now, again, if these things were causing a lot of home fires, we would probably know about it. But then the other thing is, well, what if there's a power failure in the middle of the day? Do, there, these things don't don't have data loggers. You don't know what the temperature profile is. And so I, and again, I realize this, I'm asking for, a, you know, something that's probably not possible in terms of the technology of these devices without significantly adding cost. But, you know, when, when food processors do stuff like this, they have uh, thermocouples and they log temperature profiles. I would love to see <clears throat> these kind of products uh, log log the temperature change. And so if somebody were to come to me and say, hey, look, I had a deviation in my home kitchen, they wouldn't probably use that word, but I had a deviation <laughs> in my home kitchen. Um, is this safe? I could look at the that profile and I could tell you. But yeah, so I would say, you know, again, probably for most situations, they're probably safe, but I would worry about low temperature, long time stuff, especially where it's unattended for, for many hours. I mean, I, I get the benefit of it, right? I totally get the fact that you can throw stuff into a pot at the beginning of the day and then you can go off to work and come home to a nice hot meal. I, I get the convenience of that. But um, yeah, it, it does give me a little bit of pause for concern. Well, cool. Um, so moving on in our uh, listener feedback, um, a really, really quick uh, one here is follow up on our conversation about um, food glitter and mm. disco dust and dra- draggies and, and all those things. I, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Uh, uh, we got a um, message from uh, Paul Holburn. Um, who said that uh, you can share all details freely and said that this uh, food glitter and coffee is widely um, available in the UK and uh, sent us a link to a whole bunch of stuff uh, on, you know, things that there's some glitter stuff that you can get at um, at Tesco on uh, edible gold and silver. And here are the contents, silver sparkle, gold sparkle, and uh, silver sparkle contains uh, a carrier, which I uh, oh I guess that's the carrier for the mm-hmm. um, for the color uh, E fifty five potassium aluminum silicate and the color was titanium dioxide and the gold sparkle contains the same uh, carrier of E five 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 potassium aluminum silicate and a different uh, color of titanium dioxide and iron oxide. Um, so uh, you can get a lot of different uh, edible glitter that um, that's out there. Yeah, and just because it says it's gold and silver doesn't mean it's really gold and silver. It's probably titani- titanium dioxide and iron oxide. So there you exactly. go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's just a gold and silver color, not the real gold. Not the real gold and real silver, yes. Um, the other th- uh, one that I wanted to, uh, which might take a little bit more time, so this is uh, 
uh, something that I've entitled uh, uh, Stublert Fates 2 um, yes. from, from our friend um, Stublert. Um, he, so we responded, I think, to listener feedback on the last episode. And he said, yeah, I thought about my email a little bit more the next day. And I realized a little more thinking would, would lead to the conclusion you gave me, uh, blah, blah, blah. There's still something um, uh, it seems like the little key to my confused fascination, but I'm not sure how to word it. Um, might it be some ever hard to ever possibly quantify wanting to know some ratio that exists between cultural dissemination of food safety knowledge in regards to social outcomes? Then there's cultural practices that have little scientific basis but remain because people that followed them were the ones still alive, yada, yada, yada. Um, and this is when my head explodes. So yeah, so Ben, do you? I don't. I don't have a, a, a much perspective. I mean, and you, you've done more work in the food safety uh, culture space, and 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 maybe thought about cultural practices a little bit more than me. So, do you have any any thoughts on this? Um, I especially like the idea that you know there are cultural practices that continue to be followed because the people that didn't follow them um, died. And I think probably the most common one that we we have accessible to us today would be um, in the. Uh, in the in the Bible, uh, there are specific prohibitions against eating certain foods that are still followed in Orthodox Jewish cultures today. Um, that that are not really uh, that, that you could you could think well might be kind of food safety related, like regarding uh, eating pork or um, shellfish, etc. So, do you do you have any any thoughts on this beyond that? I, I do. So. Um... I, not uh, not friend or not listener to the podcast, I don't think, but definitely friend to to both of us and and a um, real uh, I think mentor for the food safety world, um, especially in retail and consumer practices. Pete Snyder has had talked about some of this stuff, this this exact question. Um, as it relates to things like Asian cooking, um, uh, and very hot wok cooking with very thin meat, which may, may not have anything to do, you know, just the, the cooking style going back thousands of years had, had nothing to do, um, with microbiology, but may have evolved as a way, um, to, to prepare food in a, in a safe way without, you know, being able to get a temperature probe in, in there. And, and so he made the, um, this, it, my recollection is he made this, this call in a conversation on the food safe list serve years ago. Um, when someone mentioned, um, uh, temperature profiles needed for, for Asian cooking in, in retail, but how would you, how could you do that? How can you verify it if you can't stick a thermometer into it? And, and so I think that there, there are lots of, probably other examples that we could do if we spent more time digging into the sociology of food, uh, where we could find these, find these things. I think that, um, the, the, the aspect of almost like what, what, what Stilbert's bringing up here is almost like a cultural meme around food preparation that may have, um, fitness or, or protective value for, for individuals. I, I, I've often wondered about that when it comes to, to hand-washing or other things, like what is it culturally that leads to not cross-contaminating or, or, or good, complete hand-washing, um, implementation? What, like, why do, why do people get it right? And why do others not get it right? And what what are the 
you know, what what are the what are the antecedents that those those folks come to the table who get it right and don't get it right come with and and how much of that is cultural how much of that is from a from a uh, a macro level, but how much of it is also sort of microcultural in, in the environment that you grew up in? Because um, uh, you know, Don, it may not surprise you, but there are lots of things that my parents do that I do not do, on based on you know just rebellion or that I don't like the practice. Like, I mean, I'm not you know there there are just certain music groups that I don't like because of them, um, but but. <laughs> But there are certain aspects of my of my childhood around cleaning and sanitizing that I do stick with, and and I you know I find it equally as fascinating. And I don't think we have a really good handle on why these things um, why these things happen. But there is an area of investigation around food sociology and the cultural aspects of food that that is getting into food preferences and food choices, um, and. And, and, you know, maybe we'll we'll see that uh, evolve into investigating what we're talking about here. But I, I, I think there's there's an element to this that there, there's there's stuff to learn from. Um, we just need the right researchers to, to jump into it and, and help uh, tell the stories. Yeah, good, good, good. And, and I, I want to just just to, to add something. So I was looking for something that Pete. Uh, Snyder might have said online about wok cooking, and I didn't find anything, uh, but I did find this really interesting uh, New York Times article by Harold McGee, the curious cook, um, from uh, 2011, uh, and the heading is Bending the Rules on Bacteria, and Harold um, uh, reached out to Pete Snyder to talk about um, um, Michael Ruhlman, who is the author of a couple of books on cooking, and um, uh, Ruhlman likes to make chicken stock and leave it out on the stovetop all week, uh, using portions day to day to make quick soups and sauces. Which, so this is from 2011, but this also reminded me of uh, something that happened recently, and that was a, a blog post um, by Jason Kotke at kotke.org about a guy named Dean Allen, who was well known in uh, the the nerd and computer communities, and it came across my social media feed a couple of different ways. And in reflecting back on Dean's life and and um, and his untimely death, uh, Jason talks about uh, visiting him and um, talking about uh, soup and and Dean's practice of leaving soup on the countertop. I saw this and and you know emailed um, uh, Jason Kotke and I saw uh, again fr- friend of the pod and, and previously mentioned on this this uh, episode, uh, Mike Batts had t- had tweeted um, about it like please don't follow this this advice. On, on leaving stuff on the stove. Um, so I just thought that was a kind of an interesting connection between um, Pete and, and why it might work to leave stuff on the stove. But I think Bats and I are both in agreement, uh, despite the fact that this is a, apparently a somewhat common practice, not, not recommended. So we'll, we'll link to that very nice uh, kotke.org um, remembrance of Dean Allen but, but, and, and also to this uh, Curious Cook article. But, but we don't rec- I don't recommend that as a practice. So... No, um, let me, um, you know, just to circle back around, I, I don't know if we, I think we talked about it on the podcast, maybe not, but I had a, um, a question from, um, a food writer in, in Charlotte who had, um, right around Christmas time, left some turkey stock mm-hmm. on, on her stove. And she, uh, you know, had posted on her Facebook page about what, you know, it's a shame to throw it all out. And then her, um, in her world, 
of chefs and, and others, people saying, no, no, it's fine. All you need to do is heat it up. And so she interviewed me about it and, and we talked a little bit about some of the risks of that. And what I, um, what I was reminded about was, um, after that, um, that article was posted and I, I blogged about it was uh, something that, um, I had, I, it had, you know, we, you and I had talked about it at some point. Um, and, but Carl Custer wrote, you know, brought back up, which is this concept of tindalization, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, that it essentially, uh, two things using a little bit of pressure to raise, um, heat, uh, in, in food to, um, go, you know, go through a, a pasteurization phase or, um, boiling, um, you know, soup or stock, um, on consecutive days to remove, you know, essentially heat treat. So the spores turn into vegetative cells and then you kill them and you do that on, on three successive uh, days. And so that, that concept of leaving it on, you know, on the stove, you know, being rooted in, in this idea of tendalization, as long as you're doing it for successive days. And so, um, uh, Kathleen Purvis, who, um, who wrote the article in the, in the Charlotte observer mm-hmm. said she got a couple of messages about tendalization. She's like, is this really a thing? And I was like, yeah, it is. But what you described is not tendalization. You're just leaving stock out for one night and, and heating it up. Had you done it? consecutive days, um, there, you know, there would have been a, um, a, 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 um, protective effect of it. Well, and, and what that neglects is that there are toxins that are heat stable, uh, namely Staphylococcus aureus toxins. Now the key question is, could Staph aureus grow in turkey stock? And I think the, the shorter answer is we don't know. Um, but, uh, but we, and I have found, uh, I have found this, this article by Kathleen Purvis and we will link to this as well. So, um, but, um, <clears throat> Unless you had something else on this topic, I wanted to go on to the next uh, very important bit of listener feedback. Let's do it. Okay. Um, It says, uh, you can read my message, but not my name. So name withheld. Hi there. My name is Cindy. (laughs) Hi, Cindy. Uh, I'm writing because at this moment I'm working on a number of PR projects in the same area as foodsafetytalk.com. It would be absolutely wonderful wonderful if we could discuss ways in which we could work together to produce content for foodsafetytalk.com, whether it is uh, contributed content or advertising placements. I represent a wide range of review and information businesses within our sector. Yes, this does include a limited budget and certain terms and should certain terms be met. Additionally, I want to assure you that I always write well-researched original content tailored to what you and your readers like to see. Furthermore, I have a track record of attracting fresh visitors to the sites that I work with. Wow. Wow. So she wants to uh, have advertisers and produce content for our website where we post our blog, Ben, Uh, our Our blog, our our food safety blog where we talk. Our our talk (laughs) blog. All right. Um, so, uh, what do you think? Should we should we uh, follow up uh, with Cindy? I think we follow <laughs> up and, and ask for um, a sample podcast from her, <laughs> and uh, and and we we should say that we would be happy to integrate her content if um, her certain terms or our certain terms can also be met. Uh, and we have uh, uh, not a limited budget at all. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have an unlimited budget. We have an unlimited, oh no, unlimited we've, budget. We have no budget. Oh, yeah, it's almost the same thing. Uh, uh, but also PS, if you're not interested, I'll understand you're not on a contact list and I won't get in touch again. Mm, so. Well, that remains to be seen, but thank you, Cindy. 
we, we will we will we will not be reaching out. But you won't ever hear this because because you probably don't listen to our podcast. Oh dear. Wait. Oh, Mike, can, oh. can you hear me? Now? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. I, so you you went all robot-y. Yeah, you, you've, been, you've been doing that a little bit for me, so I think we have uh, – uh, oh, you know what? Shoot, I am um, I am going to skip this backup. I'm sorry. I've been running a backup. Uh, ah, stop backing up. Oh, I'm sorry. I usually Turn off to all do your that. Turn off other Dropbox, things. yeah. Ugh. It's on. I'm so it's on, sorry. It's okay. Um. So moving on, while you uh, turn your backup off, uh, we have some more uh, listener feedback. Uh, let me find. You want, where you want to talk about fiddleheads? Not yet. Not yet. Oh, not okay. Yet. Um, I want to talk about reheating leftovers. Okay. Um, so this is uh, um, you can read my message, but not my, not my name. So this is uh, from a listener who writes, "Hi, Don and Ben. Here's another case of reliable agencies giving different guidance." <laughs> We love these. Oh, it's so good. And uh, reliable is always, you know, uh, a good, a good word to, to use. Um, so here, well, let's, let's just say agencies, here's the agencies giving uh, different guides. I hope you might have some information as to which is correct, mm. uh, regarding whether you can reheat, uh, leftovers more than once. USDA doesn't warn against, uh, against this UK and Canada do recommend that you only reheat leftovers once. So, um, uh, the listener gives us three, uh, sets of guidance on reheating one from, uh, from USDA, uh, FSIS, um, where, and I'll sort of read on this, um, from the leftover, uh, phase. Um, Reheat leftovers safely. When reheating leftovers, be sure they reach 165 degrees as measured with the food thermometer. Reheat sauces, soups, and gravies by bringing them to a rolling boil. Cover leftovers to reheat. This retains moisture and ensures the foods will heat all the way through. Uh, and then they talk about reheating in a microwave, which isn't super relevant to this conversation. Uh, reheating guide guidance in Canada. They say... Um, in a uh, reheat uh, leftovers to a safe internal temperature of 74 degrees Celsius, 165 uh, Fahrenheit. So we have the same there. Use a digital food thermometer to check the temperature. Um, bring gravy, soups, and sauces to a full rolling boil and stir during the pro- process. And then the, the other um, you know missing bullet from the USDA comment is discard uneaten leftovers after they've been reheated. And uh, let's go to the third link. From uh, the UK. Um, and where is this one? Yeah, it's a food standards agency. And it says, um, uh, it's, and it's a PDF uh, on, on reheating. And let's see, it says, um, uh, check the reheated food is steaming hot all the way through. Okay, I don't see any temperature measurements. Um, zero, zero yeah. temperatures on this whole page. Yep. Uh, uh, let's see, what else does it say? Yeah, always reheat until steaming. Oh, it um, is oh a, you should do this only once. Only once. Yeah. Yep. Do not put food into hot holding without reheating it properly first. And so I guess this is, I guess this is kind of more directed towards food service since they talk about hot holding. Um, doesn't yeah, and it's it's showing more uh, kitchen. So this is not information necessarily for the consumer, but looks like more for food service. Yeah, from you know guidance to the food stand, from the food standards agency. Okay. I so so Don two two things here. I default to what um, the what USDA says. I think you can reheat your leftovers multiple times because what matters isn't 
I did it twice or four times. What matters is the cumulative amount of time that that food is in, in the, in that, um, danger zone. And, but if I'm following what they say that I'm doing, I'm resetting some of the clock or resetting the clock when I hit 165. Would, would you agree with that? I, I do. I do. Where I take issue with the USDA guidance, and I have <clears throat> called them out on a couple of times uh, about this on Twitter and with no response from them, is that they say when they talk about storing leftovers safely, they say leftovers can be kept in the refrigerator for three to four days or frozen for three to four months. Um, and sometimes they specifically call out that time as being the quote unquote safe time. They had a right. post around Christmas time, three or four days after Christmas saying this is the last day to safely eat your leftovers, um, which I think it confuses people because it's really that three to four days is really about spoilage. It's really about quality. It's not about safety. Um, and, and also it raises the question, well, okay, so I take my leftovers out, I reheat them, um, uh, how many times can I do that? I would say probably for best quality, reheat um, within three to four days. After three to four days, if you haven't finished it up, you know you're probably cooking too much food, and and it's you know it's either going to have been in the refrigerator for three to four days, or you've reheated it multiple times, and it's it's probably just you know as a rule of thumb, it's not a hard and fast scientific number, um, but the quality is not going to be that good. And I just wish they would stop confusing. Um, safety with quality. But yeah, there isn't, as far as I'm concerned, there isn't a a magic number of times you can reheat something. It's more, it's really more about quality. And I you know what, what we'll do as a, as a practice is, you know, if we'll make a, if we make a casserole or a soup or something, we will make the entire batch. Um, we will eat some of it. We will put the remainder away. And then if we're going to reheat it, um, we'll just reheat. It's just two of us here, and then you know the dogs lick the plates, but they don't. They don't get an actual serving. Um, uh, the, we'll reheat a portion, right? And we'll either use the toaster oven um, if, it, if it's something that reheats for better quality that way, or we'll use a microwave if we're in a hurry. Um, but it's not. But we're not taking the entire dish through that cycle again, probably. Right. Um, if you wanted to, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but really, it's more about managing time for quality and managing endpoint temperature for safety. And and quite honestly. For me, that that I and I do have a wonderful thermopen tip sensitive digital thermometer that I will use for reheating leftovers all the time, especially in the microwave, because I don't want to bite into a cold food because that's gross. Not because I'm worried about food safety, because I think probably if the food was cooked, it's probably going to be pathogen free. I probably haven't recontaminated it with listeria or salmonella. It's not, or, or staphylococcus. It's not going to grow in the refrigerator. I mean, listeria might, but again, probably not flinging massive amounts of listeria around our home. Um, uh, so I'm really more worried about reheating to an endpoint temperature for quality because it's going to taste better if the food is hot. Um, so, and I just, I, I just wish we would stop confusing people because I think people are confused enough that we should stop telling them to reheat or to store for a certain amount of time for safety, right? It just, because it, it just, if we, if we all started doing that, I think eventually people would begin to understand that it's, you know, it's about, it's about quality, not safety. Right. Well, so let me, I'm glad we're talking about this, uh, whole area, because I also have a question about the temperature mm -hmm. in the same way. So mm -hmm. I, I know our, our listener didn't want to 
um, you didn't, didn't talk about that. And obviously the UK, they are, um, as part of Brexit, they're not allowed to use temperatures anymore, uh, or something. Uh, but, uh, 165 degrees Fahrenheit seems like that's a quality measure. Like what, what is the, you know, if we can reverse engineer why, why 165 is picked, I, it may be that there's some worry that if there was contamination that magically in my refrigerator went from uh, a raw product onto this leftover, like it, it somehow my my uh, O157 dripped out of my beef onto this this product that I should cook that product to 165 to take care of the the O157. I I I think if I'm following all of the um, if I'm following everything correctly in all the other food handling messages and I, I get a hurdle, you know, technique and, and all that, but if I'm following everything right, I think 135 is sufficient. Um, yeah, well, I just went and looked at USDA Appendix A because I like to look at that um, now and again, which is USDA FSIS Appendix A. It only goes up to 160, right? Because yeah. at 160, you have essentially instantaneous uh, five or six log reduction for uh, for salmonella. So, yeah, wh- why why are you going to? What's the benefit? Why are you going to 165? Why not 160? Why not why not some other temperature um, for appropriate amount of time? It doesn't it doesn't make sense. It's kind of like uh, yeah, I mean, so, so obviously this number is repeated again and again. But where's the scientific basis? Uh, uh, you know, and 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 I, I, you know, I'll give you that there's risk management going on there, right? So you have risk assessment, and then you have risk management trying to decide where to draw the line. Someone, some risk manager has decided to draw the line at 165 for leftovers, and I think it might even be, that might even be the temperature in the food code. But I don't think there's a scientific basis for that. Right. So, but in the food code, it is one. It's 165. Um, Except if it's something that was made at a uh, at a you know USDA plant that was packaged, right? Like if I'm reheating uh, some ready food, I can take it out of the packaging and reheat it to 135. And I I don't know this this you know we I know we have I mean right now there'll be some. Um, federal regulators that are as part of their hobby when they're not reviewing papers <laughs> for you, will be listening to food safety talk, uh, cause it won't be able to work. Um, if someone could give us some insight into that, the decision-making on 165 versus 160 versus 135 and, and how that gets into the consumer messaging, I think it would be, we'd be useful to have that, that, you know, to have that conversation. Um, so yeah. Yep. Agreed. So anyway, thanks to the listener uh, for that. Um, uh, yeah, re- reheat in in my estimation, reheat multiple times, uh, and and just uh, be aware of how long you're reheating things, uh, how long they're in that danger zone uh, cumulatively. Yep, yep. And in fact, I would say the research base. So this is interesting. I'll just briefly, and then we can move on to the next thing. Um, We've been doing, and I have one more, yet another paper that is on my list of papers to get submitted and published. So we've done some work on uh, temperature abuse and salmonella growth in ground beef and application of computer models for growth. 
with the idea that, okay, so if you, uh, if you heat ground beef up, salmonella starts to grow, you cool that beef, ground beef down again, and then you start to heat it up again. At some point you are in the salmonella cells, you are going to trigger reinitiation of lag time. And as I mentioned very, very early on in the podcast today, um, the, 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 the decision about whether to include lag time in, in modeling pathogen growth is, is very critical. But uh, what, we, what we know is that that assumption, uh, we, don't, we don't fully understand under what conditions uh, of heating and cooling of food would you reinitiate that organism going into full lag phase before uh, it growing out again. So there's a, there's a definite um, uh, research gap there. And I think it's, and that you know, this discussion just points out another another example of where we have a similar kind of research gap. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that there are assumptions that are, that are made sometimes without data. <laughs> oh, all the time, all the <laughs> sometimes time. all the time. So, so we still have, uh, by my count, five more, um, feedback items that I think are all really good and are all worth, uh, talking yeah. about. So do you, or four, I got one four. Yeah, go ahead. Go. Okay. Um, so this is, uh, from someone who said that they, we can, uh, share all details freely. And this is from, uh, someone who has engaged with us on Twitter, uh, you know, quite a bit, um, uh, Austin Bauk, mm. uh, of, uh, at fur farm and fork. And Austin asked a really great question about liability and testing and, um, research, testing, and, and a whole bunch of stuff. So let me read it. Hoping you can clarify a study design question re- regarding retail market testing of foods for pathogen pre- prevalence. When I was in school, we discussed in labs how we would not be testing our food products for pathogens, presumably because the university didn't really know what its reporting requirements responsibility would be if a student found stack in a random ground beef sample. In the same vein, I'm not sure what the reporting requirements would be for a consumer advocacy group who might want to do the same thing if they're doing a, quote, look at what we found survey of several retail sources of some category of food. It would explain one of the reasons why we see indicator organism data rather than pathogens. Um, Have you guys had to deal with this issue? Is there some sort of liability review mandatory reporting agreement you would need to include in your proposals of studies like this? Thanks for letting us nerds in the woodwork uh, bother you about these things. And and this is a, this is a great question. Um, And, and something that, that definitely, uh, you know, over my, my career has come up multiple times because we've been involved in projects where we're taking product samples somewhere and we're taking those product samples for, a variety of reasons. Um, you know, sometimes it's to get a sense of um, data that could go into risk assessments so we can make better risk management decisions. Sometimes it's a way uh, early on um, in, in my uh, career when I was a master's student, I've talked about my experience working with greenhouse vegetable growers. We took and reported a lot of um, tomato and cucumber sample uh, samples of end product, uh, and looking for, for pathogens. And the goal there from the industry standpoint was they wanted that data as some sort of, uh, baseline measurement. And then they really wanted it to be able to, um, verify that their food safety program was working, which is not what that data is really good at, uh, at showing you. Um, but there, you know, there was a lot of times where we were taking stuff and, and looking for um, looking for pathogens. Most recently, been working on a project um, where we're looking at um, 
uh, listeria contamination or the potential for listeria in food contact surfaces in retail and not looking at product. But even the food contact surface, there's a um, there's a sense of um, duty on reporting from the from from our side that uh, we wanted to to figure out a way to do this in a way that like to be able to get out there with our with our partners in the retail environment and, and gather samples without them being in a situation where they had to make a risk management decision because of a research project. So one of the ways that we've done this. Um, most recently is to blind samples. And, and so, um, we, we don't do the, the micro work here at NC state in a few of these projects, we would collect the samples. We would know the dates on where the samples were taken from. And then we would send them to, uh, to a partner. They would do the, um, the micro work on it and we would give characteristics on where we took samples but not tracing them directly to a specific product or a specific um, site. So we can get the benefit of the research data on what does the overall look like without having um, with without putting the industry in a weird position to have to 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 report or deal with something um, and because that was the key for us getting in there because they didn't they don't have to let us in to to grab to grab samples. How have you dealt with this? Yeah, so a couple of comments about this. So first of all, um, I will uh, take this opportunity to mention a paper uh, that I wrote with uh, Bob Buchanan that was published in Food Protection Trends. It was uh, some work that we did for the Pew Charitable Trusts um, to develop a scientific white paper describing uh, microbiological testing as it relates to HACCP and preventive controls. Um, and so we'll link to that. Um, but uh, so two specific points from my own experience. So we have a project uh, where we work with uh, the Rutgers University dining halls and the, the smaller cash operations. We go and we collect uh, food samples every week from those locations. We test them for indicator organisms and for pathogens. Um, we uh, The saving grace in our case is that it takes us from start to finish. We, we don't have, we certainly, we know plate counts within a couple of days. We don't have, we don't know about the presence of pathogens until probably a week or more later, depending upon confirmatory tests. And the dining hall policy is that any foods that are placed out for service are discarded at the end of that shift. And so by the time we learn about any pathogens, that food has been in the trash for several days, right? And so there is no uh, blowback from from that at all uh, because the foods are are in the trash. Um, so we ha- so we don't have reporting requirements. But I want to also just take this opportunity to talk about something that I did last week that was a heck of a lot of fun and points out the kind of things you need to think about when doing and just how important this is. And so I was asked to go and be part of a panel um, that was hosted by General Mills in the wonderful city of uh, Minneapolis on uh, microbiological uh, criteria and testing for not ready to eat foods. And the there were sort of two recurring foci we talked. And and so, um, a friend of the pod, uh, Dr. Freeze was there and also a friend of the pod, um, the daughter-in-law of love my bago, uh, was there. So, so a couple of folks, uh, that have been guests on the podcast were there in the room and it was, it was a a lot of fun uh, to talk with them. Um, 
And we talked around uh, listeria and frozen foods, as you might expect, but then also um, enteric pathogens in flour. And the fact that these are big problems for the industry, and we talked about what you would have to do with this uh, kind of a study here. So if the industry, and and again, I I, I did not, I had never visited uh, General Mills before, and I have to say, I was really impressed with the quality of the people and the quality of the discussions. I was also pleased with the quality of the discussion of uh, non-General Mills folks around the table. They brought in a really uh, really good good bunch of folks, um, uh, and, and we really had some good discussions for about two days. But if you, if if there is, so if you have a product like a frozen food or like a flour product, even if those are theoretically not ready to eat, but might be on the market, you really have to think carefully about blinding and that kind of information. Because, uh, and it didn't, it didn't even, you know, it, it something was mentioned at the workshop, which blew my mind to think about. Well, so if I'm a company and I'm sourcing flour from a flour mill and I, as a part of my good manufacturing practices and food safety, I test that flour for a pathogen and I get an alert, I get a hit on a pathogen and I report it back to my supplier, I'm going to piss off a lot of people because then that supplier has to then go out to all of their other customers and say, guess what? We found salmonella in this ingredient. It never, I mean, for, for whatever reason, I mean, I guess I thought, sort of theoretically knew that might be a risk, um, but but th- but that could really, really be disruptive to people. And, and again, it comes down to, and I know there's folks from, from food safety agencies like FDA that sometimes listen to this podcast, and I just, th- these are not ready to eat foods. And right now, because of the way FDA is handling this, there's a tremendous disincentive for those companies to do testing because of this knock-on ripple-out effect uh, that that might you know require people to do to do recalls. And the problem with that is, I mean, recalls are great, right? Recalls help to make make food safe. The problem is that the industry is really penalized because it doesn't know true prevalence and concentration of listeria in frozen foods, and it doesn't know pr- true prevalence and concentration of enteric pathogens in flour. And until we have that information, it's very it, it's much more difficult for those companies to do risk management because they're lacking that information. And so, so the so the, the 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 short answer to Austin's question is: in some cases, it may not matter, and you don't need to worry about it. But if there is any possibility that those foods will still be on the marketplace or might have been ingredients that have gone into other foods, you really want to set yourself up into a situation where that is blinded and that and that. that that information can never be traced back because otherwise you're going to be causing a great deal of trouble um, for the people that that bought food from those same lots of product. And so, and there are various ways of doing that. You can, I mean, you know, you can use universities, you can use lawyers. I think probably the most rock solid way would be to send it through a law firm and then and then have the information go out to uh, to a private testing lab um, and where only the law firm knows, and then you have some. Um, um, uh, confidentiality protection because uh, because you went through a lawyer to do it, but you really you really have to think about you know what the ramifications are, and again, and the answer could be you know could be anywhere from you know a hundred percent to zero percent, just depending upon the context. So so thanks. I mean you know I so if you're not if you're on Twitter. And you're not following uh, Fur, Farm, and Fork, you should. Um, And thanks to Austin for the really good question.
Yeah. And one little, little piece of circling back to his question. Um, we, we might see, um, indicator organisms look for and for other reasons. And, and that's that they're easier to find than pathogens as well. Mm. Right. Like, like it's, um, in lots of, lots of projects that I've been part of where we would go in to a facility or even looking for it on, on product. And we would almost never find pathogens, but we could find, we could find a lot of, a lot of indicators. Um, and, and so if you know, anytime that I've, um, spoken with an advocacy group or a media group who said, Hey, we want to test a bunch of stuff. Um, I've steered them away from pathogens cause it's you just, your likelihood of finding a pathogen is pretty small. Right. And, and, and certainly test for pathogens if you want, right. But realize that you are probably, and again, this has happened with, you know, if a TV program comes and wants to do some testing and it's like, well, yeah, don't, I mean, test for pathogens. Sure. But you want to have a backup plan, right? You want to test for total play count. You want to test for coliforms, E. coli, um, because you're going to want to get something out of it, and and that's why uh, that's why indicators are important because they are useful, and you're you're probably going to find them. Not that they're necessarily going to indicate anything, but at least you'll get something out of it. And so yeah, so 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 don't don't just hang your hat on only testing for pathogens, or you're probably just going to be get a lot of zeros, and you're going to be really disappointed. And I have to say too, with respect to the work that we do for Rutgers Dining, um, we hardly ever find we we I think we found uh, pathogenic E. coli once. We found salmonella a handful of times over 10 or more years of running the program. Um, we find low levels of staphylococcus and low levels of bacillus serious, uh, you know, uh, enterohemorrhagic or not he- hemorrhagic, but we uh, find uh, bacillus serious that, that uh, do lice, uh, red blood cells on, on sheep's blood agar. So we do find staph and um, uh, uh, bacillus serious all the time. Hardly ever find listeria, hardly ever find salmonella or, or pathogenic E. coli. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks Austin for that great message. Um, okay. Got another, got another one for you. You sure. want to talk about, you want to talk fiddleheads? Let's uh, talk. Fiddleheads. Sure. Let's talk fiddleheads. So Ben, uh, what's a fiddlehead? <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> oh, Don. And, uh, and we should say, uh, this is also from, um, the same person, um, who we read from before, um, who had that other question about the thing, um, who says, uh, read my message, not my name. We need to come up with a code, uh, a code, a code word for her. Like, um, um, the, the lady from new England. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh yeah, uh uh deep New England. Deep. Uh, <laughs> uh so uh messages since I'm trying to see signs of spring and the days are getting longer. <laughs> me too. Had, me yeah. too, listener, me too. I am awesome. actually it's warm here in New Jersey today, but boy, I would love to see some signs of spring. Oh, they're coming. Uh, fiddleheads and food safety are on my mind. I bought a jar of pickled fiddleheads last summer, trying to extend my fiddlehead eating season as they're only available fresh in, uh, in new England for a short period of time in the spring. But then I remembered that the food poisoning incidents in Canada in the 1990s and wondered about them at the time. My understanding was that although they'd never identified the toxin evidence suggested it was destroyed by proper boiling or steaming. There is also a question of whether this boiling or steaming might leach the toxin to the cooking water. So it should be discarded, um, called the purveyor home-based business. And they said they do not discard the cooking water for their pickled fiddlehead fiddlehead products. Mm. As a 
survivor of serious food poisoning incident years ago. I'm very careful about doing what I can to prevent that experience again. So I will be discarding the product to drain them and cook them further would make them into an unappetizing fiddlehead puree at this point. But I plan to write a blog about fiddlehead food safety as they're popular up here in the spring. And I want to give good advice. CDC doesn't mention the cooking water first. Health Canada does. My take uh, is to give the reader the info and let them decide. But maybe you have resources that answer this more completely. I do not. I'll and being the token uh, Canadian on the uh, on the podcast. Um, we I'm I'm familiar with the fiddlehead linked uh, illnesses and and outbreaks and yeah um, there was a you know a, a more recent one uh, that happened in uh, 2012 um, that where there were some illnesses in in Canada and we'll link to this um, in show notes but uh, we um, let me find it here we blogged about this on um, on the on the barf blog um, and it's uh, it's still, you know, unidentified. I, I would say that the, the thing is, is I look at the, the recommendation, which is, uh, from, uh, uh, from, uh, health Canada, um, cook the fiddleheads in boiling water for 15 minutes or steam them for 10 to 12 minutes. Um, I, I would guess that the toxin, whatever it is, would be, uh, of similar heat stableness, or, or heat label this li- label. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, to uh, to what you would have with a, a bot toxin, where what if the toxin's there, you're denaturing it in that that rolling boil or for 15 minutes or or 10 minutes of uh, of steaming. Uh, I don't know about the water used for boiling or steaming. Fiddlehead should be discarded, right? Like so, if I think about the the destruction. If we're denaturing the uh, the toxin in the fiddleheads themselves. Why wouldn't it also denature it in the water? Yeah, or that, am I missing? No, no. I think I think that that's that is that is probably the 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 correct assumption here. Um, and I would say, you know, um, uh, uh, deep deep New England. Um, uh, you know, you need to write the article. I think if I was going to write this article, I would write it in a way that was um, that 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 reflected the level of uncertainty, right? Um, I mean, in the in this article from um, uh, the State of Alaska Epidemiology Bulletin from 2010, where they just recently had an outbreak in you know May of 2010 in Anchorage, it says cooking fiddlehead ferns, i.e. boiling for 10 to 15 minutes, reduces the risk of gastrointestinal illness. Um, there are, and there's not just one kind of fiddlehead, right? Uh, there's there's uh, many kinds of fiddleheads. Some are unsafe to eat. Uh, bracken ferns are known to contain carcinogenic compounds. The ostrich fern, which is what caused this, this latest outbreak in, in Alaska, is considered to be one of the safest fiddleheads to consume. Um, and yet, uh, people people still uh, still got sick. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and I think also no mention of fiddleheads would be incomplete without um, uh, Doug's wonderful comment from the blog post entitled Seven Sick from Fiddleheads in Toronto. Quote, I never understood the appeal of fiddleheads, a harbinger of spring in Canada. They look and taste like green turds. So thank you for that, Doug. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Um, uh, just to, to seal this off, I, I spent some time looking at, um, the fiddle pickled fiddlehead, 
uh, recipes and, and we don't, you know, our, our good friends at national center for home food preservation do not have a fiddlehead, uh, pickled fiddlehead, uh, recipe. Um, <clears throat> but the, of the ones that I could find on online, um, it, it, there is like a, a split between whether you're boiling the fiddleheads before the brine or if you're doing it as a processing afterwards, but pretty much all of them, I, I see this, you know, 10 minute plus processing time, uh, you know, either in the, in the prepper or in canning that, that would be in step with the recommendations. I've had fiddleheads. Um, have you ever had them before? I, I don't think I've ever had them. No, they're, they're not, they're not great. Are they, are um, they, um, are, are they, do they look and taste like green turds? <laughs> They definitely look like green turds. My, uh, I, I don't really have a good um, comparison on the taste <laughs> of green turds. Uh, they're, I don't know. They're like, um, they're not beany. They're just like cooked greens. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a thing. I mean, in uh, New Brunswick, uh, they're, you know what? They're they're like asparagus. Mm. That, but not not like woody asparagus. Mm-hmm. Um. So, uh, anyway, yeah, I, not one that, uh, that I would, uh, I I don't, I just don't get the water, right? Like I, I hope that, um, that, uh, deep new England, um, you know, didn't, uh, I mean, it, uh, it sounds like you've already discarded the product, but I reusing the water, I can't, I, I just, I don't understand what the risk is. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't compute for me. And the other thing I would say too, um, is I would, I would really think twice. Well, you know, I mean, not to bash on home-based businesses, but I would really think twice about whether I wanted to buy a potentially risky product like this, which where we just really don't have a good handle on the food safety risks from a home-based business, right? Like it's one thing to buy jams and jellies or bread or cookies from a home-baked from a home home business. A home business that's selling uh, pickled fiddleheads, I that just raises some some alarm bells for me. Just like a, you know, a home a home beef jerky business or something, you know, where it's like, well, do you really understand the risks and and do you have appropriate things in place to manage them? Given especially given our uncertainty about exactly what's causing the illness with fiddleheads, you know, I I don't know, I uh, I, I I would I, I'm I'm uh, I'm hesitant. That's all. Yeah, well, and even if it's a non-home based business, right? Uh, I, I just uh, sent you a link that we'll include in um, show notes for uh, home style pickle assortment uh, that comes from the Vermont Country Store. Pickled fiddleheads looks like a very nice label on it. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, that, that's that's in New England, uh, Ben. For people that don't know is. Vermont, that's in New England. <laughs> that's uh, deep in the heart of New England. <laughs> Yes. So, so yeah, you can, you can find this stuff out there. I I just don't know. And they're, I mean, yeah. Oh, I will, I will say though, this home uh, style pickle assortment, um, includes something called chow chow, which is not the dog. Okay. We we know chow chow. I I had, I had never heard of chow chow until uh, I visited a friend of the podcast. Uh, I think uh, listener, uh, Dr. uh, Randy Warbo. Um, who was making some making some chow chow, and I've had uh, Warbo chow chow, and it's pretty damn good. I I, I like uh, I like some chow chow. Uh, there are tested recipes for chow chow in uh, so easy to preserve from the National Center for Home Food Preservation. Boom. So make, make yeah, follow those. Chow chow. Yeah, 
this is this this episode's all about Elizabeth. <laughs> um. So there was one more that we had here yep. that I wanted to talk about. Yep. Can I put my finger on it, Don? Um. Uh, uh, spatulas. So we, we have. There's two. There's, there's ultrasonic uh, disinfection technology from Indiegogo, and there's spatulas. Spatulas. Let's go. Right. Spatulas. Go. So this is a really good one. And so yes. this is. Uh, this is. Oh my gosh. This is deep, <laughs> man. So. Uh, what do you call it? A hat trick. A hat trick from uh, New England lady. Uh, uh, deep, deep uh, New England. Um, so, uh, right. So, so, uh, and this is a multi-threaded uh, uh, thing. So, uh, 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 I, I think this is the last question for now. Well, it better be. No, please, please keep sending us messages. Um, this question came up, and I'm embar- embarrassed to say I hadn't considered it before. What is proper spatula use when cooking a hamburger? How many spatulas do you need? One to flip it, which may get contaminated since it's still half raw. One to remove it from the cooking surface to test it. Or maybe you would use tongs for this. But if it isn't at 160, then you need an additional utensil for when it's done. So I guess the question is, what is the actual method you teach consumers to use and why? So first of all, I don't teach consumers, so I'll leave that to you. But I can tell you what I do in my own home. And, and, I, and my response to her was, I'm glad that I am not the only one to think about this. Um, what I do is that I will use – so I for sure, if I'm grilling burgers in the backyard, for sure I will use two plates, right? One plate to take the raw burgers out, another plate to bring the, the cooked burgers in or, to, or separate serving plates. Um, I will use the same spatula with the idea being that at some point – that spatula is going to touch a cooked bur- the outside of a cooked burger. It's going to be in intimate contact with the grill. I don't think there's a, a significant cross contamination risk there. Um, and, uh, and and she says, uh, or the 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 listener writes, um, I asked about for home cooks, but I should have inc- included that I'm interested in both food service and home recommendations. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, and so, uh, yeah, so, uh, oh, and then um, I should have been clear. I'd be interested in how you would advise the home cook cooking two to three burgers versus the hamburger flipper volunteer at an event where a grill is covered with a number of burgers. I don't think it would be reasonable to tempt them all and have the number of clean spatulas to turn them with, or is that what you're recommending? And I guess, uh, you know, the, the, the I think one of the keys to... Um, good burgers is to not flip too early. And then the bottom side of the burger is almost always going to be at, you know, uh, you know, we six log lethality for, for pathogens. It's at 160. And so any spatula that's touching the bottom of that burger is going to be okay. Now you could say, well, what if you get, you know, blood dripping off and you've got pathogens on that. But I, I think if you're if you're paying attention to what you're doing, you can you can work with a single spatula. But maybe I'm being too liberal in my advice. What's what are your thoughts, Ben? No, no. So I, I I've I've done it both ways. Um, it's an economy of scale situation for me. Mm. So in you know, I prepared. Uh, it was beautiful here in North Carolina yesterday. After we got seven inches of snow last week, uh, it hit almost seventy degrees, and um, my eldest son, who is very picky at eating. Uh, uh, asked me, he was like, can you m- make me a hamburger for lunch? And I went to the freezer. We had some frozen burgers. Uh, that's what I made them. Grilled them outside. I used one spatula. I do I, I, I do a couple of things, though, um, on this. I do not place the spatula 
I, I don't place the burgers on the grill with the spatula. Right. I use my hands for mm. that. Um, I take my plate out, use my hands. I place it where I want it to go. I go inside. I wash my hands. I take that um, that that uh, plate that was holding the um, frozen burgers, and I put that in, into the dishwasher. And then I come out with a clean plate and, and clean hands. Um, I then use uh, the spatula for flipping. I use one spatula when I'm preparing food for just my family or just a small, you know, maybe three or four hamburgers. And I, I kill, um, I, I leave the spatula and the, the flipping part inside the grill, um, the ambient air temperature, at like 300 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever it is I'm, I'm grilling at with the thoughts that if I do have any contamination that I pick up and it drips on there, that I am heating that, that, uh, that end right, like right on the grill and I'm killing whatever's on, uh, whatever's left over when I'm making, and we've, we've had a few large events. Um, I use two, um, two implements and to, uh, deep, um, uh, deep new England's, uh, point, I, I will use tongs to pull the burgers off the grill. I flip with, with a, um, uh, with a spatula, but I'm picking them up actively with tongs and I'm using two sets of tongs. So, um, that's my, so, and I've got like a finished tong and I have a in process tong and I just keep them on left and right. Um, and I do temp every freaking burger. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, I, I, I just, and, and we, um, we just put together an abstract for IAFP, uh, with some, uh, some data that, that was collected with, uh, John Lachansky and Anna Portafet, uh, the mythical individuals from, there we go, uh, ARS in, uh, at the Eastern research, Re- Eastern regional research center. And, um, John and Anna and I, and my graduate student men have had a really interesting discussion about, uh, cold spots in mm. burgers mm-hmm. that the data that, um, so they, they have a whole system on cooking and, and looking at flips and, uh, but very, they, they have some unpublished data and now we have some additional unpublished data. Theirs is on beef and ours, the combined stuff is on Turkey showing really striking differences on cold spots and burgers. So, uh, you know, not just because of that, but because of some other stuff where I'm, I, I temp them all, temp every burger. Um, and I have, so I will, to, you know, to the listener's question, I will take the burger off the grill with the pair of tongs that I would deem to be in process, those tongs. Mm. I take the temperature. If the temperature of that burger is above 160 degrees, then I place that burger back on the grill to, to sear anything that I might have cross-contaminated. I flip it once, and this all takes like uh, two seconds, right? Like it's back on the grill. I flip it over. It's back on the grill because the grill is going to be at like 400 degrees. Yep. And then I grab my other tongs and I take it off. And that's the kind of nerd I am. Wow. So, and yeah, now I am not, uh, I want to come back to the question. I don't actually teach consumers either, or at least that's not how I would mm-hmm. prefer it. I, I'm about providing information on risk uh, management. So that's how I would manage risk. Um, how someone does it, you know, what, whatever. I think your, your approach 
of one and you know same with with mine um is is totally fine if i'm only dealing with nine you know eight or nine burgers right, or four right. uh when i've got 40 i have a more systematic approach and mainly because i am dealing at, at that time more of like it's unlikely because of cold spots in the grill and um you know, the lack of uniformity of temperature that I'm going to pull all 40 of those burgers off within the same two or three minutes. Um, it's a, it's definitely more like, okay, there are five or six that are ready and now there's another three or four that are ready. So I just keep those, um, instruments separate. And, and I would suggest that that's, um, would be a common practice in, uh, in food service as well. And where I picked up the laying my spatula on the grill was when I was a dishwasher, um, as part of my PhD. And that's how they kept their, um, utensils hot and, uh, did not, uh, you know, reduce their chance for cross-contamination. Yeah. Good, good, good advice. Hey, um, so I know it's unpublished stuff, but what can you tell me about cold spots? I, I know this is a little bit of a segue here or a, a side conversation, but so yeah. is that, uh, how concerned should we be about this or should we wait for you to blow the doors off when you publish? No, I mean, we can, we can talk about it and I don't want to, I, I, I'm not going to give you any real particulars cause we haven't crunched the numbers and done the analysis on it, but it wouldn't be surprising to see in a burger, a 15 degree difference in temperature on a, um, third of a pound burger mm-hmm. from, from five different locations wow. yeah. with, with a fairly like significant standard deviation. Um, yeah. So the number of points, and I think in, in, um, y- y- you can, I- I'll, I'll link to, um, uh, some of John and Anna's publications on, on cook temperatures to get a sense of how many, I think they take five or six readings of every burger um, it with like at all times during these, during this cook and they, they could, they haven't reported it yet, but, um, we've got some, uh, some thoughts in the next little while on putting together a manuscript that discusses that because it's, it's not, um, if I get it right, I think out of the, the burgers, like about half the burgers that they would see in their cook study would have a, um, an overall average reading above 160 degrees, let's say, mm-hmm. but, uh, but half of them, at least one out of the five spots would not reach that. Right. And I could say just anecdotally, whether I'm temping some lasagna that I'm reheating in a toaster oven or whether I'm checking a steak, um, or whether I'm checking a burger on a backyard grill or even just uh, a, a thing of even something as simple as soup in a microwave, I, I, I have noticed the same thing because I'll take multiple measurements. So I'm like, wow, it's really, really variable. And I just figured it was maybe poor technique on my part or something. I don't you know. It'd be really interesting. I'm thinking about this now from a from a modeling point of view and not the kind of modeling I do, but the kind of modeling that um, uh, food engineers do with uh, finite element modeling. If you constructed a, a finite element model of a beef burger with the application of heat coming from one direction, and I don't know if it'd be complicated because you got protein and fat and 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 water. But I'm wondering if you could mimic that. I'd be very interested to see like a computer simulation type model for you know what it looks like in a burger as it cooks, um, because it's uh, it seems like you know it would be. I wonder. I'm. Sh- I'm not questioning the validity of the measurements. I'm just wondering how much 
you know, I'm just looking for another way to triangulate or get to that same yeah, place, yeah. you know, and figure out, okay, so what's, what's causing that, right? Like why, why are there such dramatic hot and cold spots? It, it almost doesn't make sense, right? Well, um, so what, I mean, one of the things that, you know, um, that John and Anna and, and I've talked about, and they're really the, you know, the experts in the, in the meat science aspect, yep. but, a, um, a ground beef product or a ground meat product is not very well homogenized. Okay. So, so there are, you, you know, you, you get a, um, you know, a 7% fat and uh 93% lean burger, but really if you looked at a, at a much more micro scale, right, right. you're looking at places where there's a hundred percent fat right. or even in, in a, you know, zoom out a little bit, you've got places where it's 20% fat and, and 80% lean. And, and that, um, that aspect of, um, of it matters. And on whether, um, it's electric grill versus gas grill, um, you know, the cooking method matters as well as the number of flips. Mm-hmm. So less flips equals more cold spots, hmm. more flips equals a more even heat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of, lots of stuff that, that I, th- I think can, can start to explain it. Yeah. But, the but I, it's that it's really like, it's part of the reason why I, I recommend, um, or when, I don't, I don't want to use that word, but when people do ask me about how I do things, I talk about taking the temperature in multiple spots because of even in my, you know, in my Turkey, I see these different, different spots because of the thickness of the, of the meat and how, how my oven works. Yeah. Well, and, and if you think about it, right, the, the protein is going to behave differently than the fat is going to behave differently than the water. Um, the, the water and the fat I suspect are moving, Right, the right, pro- the right. protein is moving less. Um, the the extent to which the protein sets up a matrix that makes it more difficult for the fat and the water to move. Um, the water is not only is not only the is the water moving. The water is changing phase, right, um, from from liquid to gas. So yeah. Anyway, interesting stuff. Yeah, all all that stuff. But it, it um, I just thought it was fascinating when we started talking about it that there were so many like. If you, if you looked at scoring a burger, right, um, you would score the entirety of the burger as passing this threshold of a temperature, but there are parts of that burger that would not pass that. And that has a, a really interesting regulatory and public health impact because I, I could meet all the regulatory requirement in the food code of cooking my, my burgers to, to, you know, 160, um, for instant, instant kill. Um, although the entire burger doesn't reach 160, like I measured 160 in one spot. Well, and I've got to think though, you know, if I, if I'm trying to address this from a risk assessment point of view, you know, pathogens are seldom there. Right. If they are, where are they? Well, they're going to be uniformly distributed throughout the burger. They're going to be, you know, as close to the edge as in the middle. All of our food safety calculations are based on worst case assumptions in the middle of a cold spot where the seven logs of the pathogen are located. So you could just because we have cold spots and because people might not exactly measure the cold spot doesn't mean that there's risk, right? Because the, the pathogens are spread and the cold spots are spread and you've got to have a sort of a perfect 
storm of the, all the right pathogens in the right cold spot at the right time. And you've got to not hit that cold spot with your thermocouple. So, you know, there's a lot of safety and sort of redundancy built into the system, um, which means, which is why even with, uh, you know, and what you're really trying to prevent with all that temperature measurement is you're really trying to prevent grossly undercooked burgers where you're just not anywhere near the, 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 the temperature throughout most of the burger, right? Right, right. Well, and the thing that we haven't talked about is um, the like not planned but practical hold time, right? So my my burger may fail in one out of five spots, but I, I will have some that, that temperature is going to move. It's going right. to change uh, by the time I consume it. Right. Where's the and, yeah? So so yeah. Just because you had a cold spot that you did or didn't measure, um, now what's carryover cooking? What's the you know the, the heat is going to is going to equilibrate throughout the burger? Right. All of that comes into play exactly. And and I you know it, it's not realistic that I would take it from thermometer and put it directly into my mouth. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. But anyway, some, yeah, some interesting stuff. So as that, as that develops, I'll, uh, I'll share that with you guys. Cool. So uh, last uh, bit of listener feedback, uh, and this is, uh, you can read my message, but not my name. Um, and this is a great message, by the way. So this, this is this is exactly um, this 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 warms my heart to know that people like this listen to our podcast. So he says, uh, "Dear Ben and Don, um, greetings. I teach ethics at a small university in Nebraska, and I've been so listening good. to your pod." cast for a couple of years. So, so obviously this is some, somebody who listens. Um, and I mean, it's like, who could imagine Ben, that we would have somebody who teaches ethics at a small university in Nebraska. We would have an English professor, uh, from, uh, Geneseo, the college where my mother went to school to learn to be a teacher. Um, listen to the, I mean, it's just, it's like, I understand why our, our, our food safety nerd friends listen, but I am so glad that we can make something that people that we never would have interacted with, um, can find find and listen to. So anyway, um, and he says, uh, so he, he wanted to take you out, um, for coffee when you were in Omaha, Ben, but he was behind and he didn't actually uh, hear that you were here until <laughs> afterwards. So, you know, let that be a lesson to you. Keep up to date on your podcast. You might never know when we're coming to town. Um, and this is a great, great question too, by the way. Uh, so he says, I have a question for which I can already predict some part of the answer. It's complicated and it depends, but I would be interested in hearing more about the details. I ran across a device called the Sonic Soak on Indiegogo. And so for those of you that don't know, Indiegogo is a, um, uh, a website that you can go to to get funding for your your innovative ideas. Um, the, uh, the the website claims that the, or the, the post on Indiegogo claims that the product can, quote, destroy foreign contaminants and pesticide residues present in all conventionally and organically grown vegetables and fruits at the cellular level. And uh, we, will, we will link to this um, uh, uh, and, and, and give some, some feedback. Um, the, the, the comment um, is, I'm wondering whether these claims have any merit and whether the device or some other ultrasonic cleaning system might be an effective strategy for increasing the safety of uncooked produce. I've done some Googling for studies about the device, but have come up empty. Uh, I have found a few studies of ultrasonic waves as a strategy for deactivating bacteria. They seem to vary in their analysis of the, their efficacy, and none that I saw looks at the role of ultrasound for individual people rather than industrial applications. What are your thoughts? So, Ben, do you have uh, any thoughts? Um, so I've, I've been a little bit familiar with this, with, with uh, ultrasonic uh, technology, and 
I've come across a few people that are looking at this technology from a commercial standpoint in retail to to uh, sanitize um, often used equipment, um, things like uh, mechanically tenderized the you know, the 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 equipment that's used to for vacuum tumbling and other mechanic tenderization because it's difficult to take those those apart. Um, but that's about it. The extent is, yeah, people are interested in investigating whether whether it works. Uh, I'm not aware of anybody actually doing that work, um, you know, at least in, in publishing it. Uh, but it's it's come up a few times as is there a way to to drop equipment or utensils into an ultrasonication pool, a, a, almost like what we do with um, – uh, sanitizer buckets and rags in, in, in retail where the, we have this passive way of keeping those rags, um, usable by just dropping them into a bucket and, and then getting hit with a whole bunch of, uh, sanitizer. And, but yeah, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know if anybody's actually done anything beyond just talk about it. Right. And so there is, as, as uh, the listener indicates, oh, and so we need to, we need to nickname him for him. So like, I don't know, like uh, deep ethics or deep truth. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, what we should do is when people email us, uh, please give us suggestions for what, if you, yeah. if you, if you say you want us to read your message, but you're not your name, give us a nickname for you. It's, there's not a, there's not a space for that on the, on the, the feedback form, but you can give us a name and we'll try to call you by it. <laughs> so oh, anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Omaha, Omaha. <laughs> I want to work in the ethics angle. I think it's, I think it's fascinating that this is, this is an ethics professor, uh, ethics instructor. That's, uh, that's awesome. um, uh, ethics teacher that's talking to us. But anyway, um, so, and I have to say, so, so as, as, uh, the li- listener indicated, um, there is some literature, so you can do a Google Scholar search um, on uh, ultra uh, ultrasonic uh, ultrasound deca- decontamination. Um, uh, there's a you know I, there's articles going back in the literature. I found back one back as early as 2002, um, uh, which is uh, an article entitled uh, "Ultrasound Decontamination of Minimally Processed Fruits and Vegetables," um, and and basically and which uses uh, ultrasound uh, frequencies that that are above and below this particular technology. So this technology uses uh, 50 uh, kilohertz. um, And these people in this article, uh, uh, researchers from England, studied above and below that. um, uh, And they found that the frequency had no significant effect on decontamination efficiency, although there was some benefit. And they studied water, chlorinated water, ultrasound with water, and ultrasound with chlorinated water. Um, So there may be some benefit. And so I think the the listener sized it up when, when we said it's complicated and it depends. I have to say, though, I, I mean, I get... This is a really cool device, but this Indiegogo website is crap, okay? I mean, there's pictures here uh, like showing sonic soak washing versus regular washing, and the regular washing has some images of what might be bacteria photoshopped on top of the picture. Um, They talk about... um, uh, oh, a wonderful quote here from Chuck Gerba about uh, the bacteria on your underwear. Um, you know, I mean, it's just uh, uh, washing off 67 different chemicals can be difficult. When traditional washing fails, sonic soak doesn't. Um, uh, 
Don't have time to individually clean each grape? Can't reach every strawberry pour? Just throw them in with Sonic Soak. Um, but but there's no there's absolutely no data on the efficacy of this technology. They don't link to any peer-reviewed publications. I mean, it's just. I mean, I'm not impressed, right? I mean, I'm just absolutely not impressed. There's a lot of Photoshop pictures here. I mean, if you if you think gadgets are cool and you have $150 in disposable income, go for it. But don't do it because you think it's going to make your food any safer, right? I just really, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm just not impressed at all with, with no. an, anything about this product or this. I mean, I'm impressed with how it looks. I have to say I'm impressed with how it looks, but I am absolutely not impressed with any. There's nothing here that's convinced me as a scientist that there's anything here that's that's going to make anything safe. So uh, I just I just uh, texted you something to include about another type of product that you could buy today. Oh, yeah. We don't have to, yeah. Uh, a 12.8 liter home use ultrasonic ozone vegetable fruit sterilizer cleaner washer health by more dental. So it's, uh, um, I, my, I will read on this, uh, features, no scrubbing. The ultrasonic food washer uses the principle of ultrasonic and reactive oxygen to remove 98.9% of agricultural chemicals from fruits and vegetables easily and effectively. Um, eliminates odors, chlorine and other chemicals and viruses and germs. Wait, but <laughs> viruses and germs, Ben, yep. both of them, both wow. of them. Wow. Uh, use it on whatever you want, baby toys and more, uh, operates using a silent vibration with no splashing over the rim unit sits on the countertop, but here are the more specific applications, vegetables and fruit, remove those 98% of 98.9% of pesticides. Rice, remove pesticides and disinfection. Is it removing the disinfection? I don't know. But here's my favorite. Meat. This will remove all of the clenbuterol that you have in your meat, Don. That's good. I, I, I worry about having uh, uh, too much clenbuterol in my meat. So take care of that. Fish sterilization and cleaning. Kitchen utensil cleaning, chopping board, knife, fork. And jewelry, metal, your watch chain. Do you have a watch chain? Is that from your... I have a mo- I have a monocle chain. Will that work the same way? I love uh, I love the I love the uh, the punctuation. Some of these have periods. Some of them have a space before the period. Some of them don't have periods. This is a very professionally done uh, Amazon website. Yeah, you can <sighs> clean your you can clean your denture as well. Just the one, just the can, one denture. Uh, qu- con- customer questions and answers. Can you use it without the ozone? Just the ultrasonic ozone is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, dear my friend, different fruit you can set different time. <laughs> dear my friend. Oh, so good. Uh, my Actually, my favorite thing is, so in the specifications, one of the specifications is cleaning basket. And the message that is have. <laughs> so oh, it right. have. Have cleaning there, basket. Have cleaning basket. We'll travel. Oh, Don, I think that, I think that might be a show. Oh my gosh. Yes. I think that, I think that's a show. Um, I, before, before we leave, there's one thing that I, I, um, I taped a episode of, uh, a, what I what turns out is a popular TV show that I was not really familiar with before taping the episode of it. And it's a show called the doctors, which is with, it's produced by, I mean, the doctor, Dr. Phil. Oh, um, yeah. And so I taped it on Friday afternoon and Here's here's the selfish uh, uh, plug. So they plugged 
barf blog, um, even though I gave them food safety talk and barf blog. And I don't know when this episode is going to like it, when it's going to air. Cause I, you know, my assumption is they, they tape a few a day. Uh, but it was Friday afternoon. So it's either, you know, today or tomorrow that it's going to air. So what I want to do is get, um, food safety talk up on barf blog. So it will drive people, you know, the, the, the 12 people that watch the, uh, the doctors will then go to barf blog and then see our, our podcast right at the top. Wow. I, I, I want to get all those people that, that, that also like, uh, listen to this because they think it's a new episode of Dr. Who. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh! Oh, which which reminds me. So we'll let's do a, a tiny bit of um, of culture here, um, uh, which is which uh, of 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 television shows that Don and Ben are watching um, because it's kind of relevant. So we've been watching this uh, this British show called The Last Man's. I think that's what it's called. Um, which is a wonderful uh, misadventure, crazy. The wrong man's. The wrong man's. Yes, yes. The wrong man's. Thank you. Um, which is yeah, because of course it's the wrong, the wrong, the wrong man asses that uh, get involved in this. Anyway, it's uh, highly recommended. It's uh, it's uh, it's not. Uh, it's on. Uh, it's on. I think BBC America right now. So it, the episodes are are slowly uh, slowly dropping. You can't binge watch it, but uh, ah, it's anyway. on. It, it, it looks like it's on Hulu. Oh, okay, cool. So yeah. the, the wrong man's highly recommended. All right. Um, I will drop a piece of what we're watching. Um, and I meant to text you about this. Uh, but thanks to uh, that one of those podcasts that we listen to do by Friday, um, we are watching Patriot, mm. which is uh, amazing. Danny's in. I'm in. I love the show. Um, it's uh, it's definitely moved into the top three or four uh, that we will watch all year. So it's it's not the Patriot. That's a different show. No, That's and it's also movie. not the 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 uh, uh, f- football team. Um, uh, Patriots the New England. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. No, it's uh, it, it is uh, about uh, a spy who is also a folk singer and sings about his spying. And it's and that's it. That's pretty much. I think I've hit it. And and I have to say, this is going to be one of those things where I'm going to have to watch it by myself because we watched the first episode. Um, it's, it is edgy as hell. Um, and, um, it's, it's just not for, for my lovely wife. So uh, if I'm going to watch it, I'll have to watch it by myself. So, um, yeah. So there you go. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, I think that's a show and, uh, go check us out on the, uh, uh, on the iTunes and rate us and do all those good things and, um, keep the feedback coming because it meant that, uh, we didn't have to do a lot of prep today. Yeah. And, 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 and by all means, uh, please check out, uh, Ben in the latest episode of Dr. Who. Yes. And, uh, it's Dr. It's Dr. Chapman. That's Dr. That's who. All right. We'll talk talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Well, there you go. So the doctors, they wanted to talk about something that we didn't talk about mm. today, which was oysters and Vibrio killing a woman in, um, in Texas and whether like how, how dangerous are raw, raw oysters? That was the first question. And then they asked about all the foods that I, that I don't eat. Um, and I said, uh, and you know, my, my list and it's different from bats's list, but raw oysters, raw milk, um, sprouts and undercooked meats. And they had, um, so we talked about sprouts and this, you know, keep this in mind Friday afternoon, one o'clock when the taping was and not three hours later, does this sprout outbreak break? And I didn't even know about it. Wow. So how timely is that going to look? That's nice. Um, so yeah. Oh, Don, uh, in, uh, shutdown, uh, updates. Um, I, I've just received official word. We've been told to stop work on a project until further notice. <laughs> oh dear. I'm sorry. Well, and, okay. and, and, I, and you better stop work because otherwise you can be fired. I heard so. what I don't understand. like that. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Um, there's a gray line here, right? Because we're doing this, some of this work, you know, indirect response, but there's some stuff that's, that's academic. That's part of this project. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would be a lousy government employee because I would, I would find it really hard to not do work, um, and I would probably be fired. Um, so I should probably never go to work for the government. This just, this, this whole thing is just idiotic. So, well, and how? What better way to hear you're fired from the man who keyed the term? You're fired. Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh. The irony of of it all. Um, okay, well. Um, this one is yours. It is. And I think I text, oh no, there was something I want to find, um, this, one of the, uh, Lachansky and Portofet cooking articles. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll shoot you that over. Oh, and I love that PubMed's also not being updated. Yeah. It's It's good. I mean, I, I, I appreciate, you know, that, that we need to let people know that when the government is not funded, um, you know, stuff doesn't work. So I, I mean, I, I, I totally get that. And I appreciate the hardworking people that put those notices up on those websites. Yeah. Okay. I can't find the paper, but I will. Okay. That's fine. So, um, and then, uh, when do you want to do this again? Let us do this. Let's see. Two weeks from today would be the 5th of February. I will be holding a workshop that day because of the snow and on Tuesday. <laughs> I could do what about what does Wednesday, February 7th look like for you? Wide open. Why don't we do that? Cause then I don't have to worry about anything else. Workshops. So I, yeah, I could do, um, nine till 11 with a heart out at 11, or I could do two till actually nine to 11. would probably be best. Okay. That's fine. All right. And that is 145, right? Mm-hmm. Holy smokes. Every time it surprises me. <laughs> Every time I look at it, I'm like, wait a second. We're not at like episode 70 anymore. Yeah. Cause no, that was like 70 episodes ago. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. It's long, a lot. Um, if you are looking for, uh, a great podcast to listen to today, mm. um, I listened uh, part of yesterday and part of it this morning, the, uh, love it or leave it from, uh, Friday night. 
Yeah. So, so love it or leave it is on my must listen as is, uh, pod save America. And then I, when I run out of things, if I, it depends on how the week goes, right? Cause there's some weeks I don't finish my, all my podcasts and there's some weeks I run out. And so actually what I listened, what I just finished listening to, uh, was the pod save the world episode that they plugged on pod save America, um, which was, which is, was really quite good. And then the other one, from, from also from Crooked Media is uh, Anna Marie Cox, uh, yeah. friends like these, um, is also on my kind of my go to list. But but right now, so I finished that uh, Pod Save the World and a new uh, Roderick just dropped uh, this morning. So that's I'm back to I've got like kind of my my A list and my B list, and and I'm back on my A list because uh, uh, new new Roderick just dropped. So I'm gonna go listen. Yeah, to that. yeah, me too. Oh, good stuff. Um, all right, cool. I'll, uh, I'll shoot you this, uh, this paper. I yep. think I just found it. Okay. Uh, and then I will, uh, yeah, I will talk to you later. All right. I'll, uh, I'll get this, hopefully get the, this, oh, actually before I listen to the new Roderick, I got to re-listen to this one for titles. And so I will, uh, I will actually get started on that right now. So, uh, hopefully we'll have this posted, uh, real soon. Awesome. I always like thinking of workflow. I always think about writing titles down as we're talking and I never do. And it would come in handy. Yeah. If I, I actually did that. Yeah. I occasionally, if I've got a really good one, I'll write it down, but, uh, yeah, it would be, it would be better. It would be better to, to do it. Um, as we go. Yep. Oh, all yeah, right. So it goes. Yep. <laughs> all right. All right. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.